Good morning, New Hope. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we are going to start. But before we do that, I want to make this plain. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is being violently trampled in pulpits all across America. It is being spat on in biblical counseling sessions. And it is being mocked in contemporary worship music song after song. And more than that, those who have been entrusted with the task of shepherding souls, that is, pastors like myself, they have denigrated the grace of God in Jesus Christ and watered it down or nuanced it to the point of irrelevance that there are, as Leonard Ravenhill has said, countless individuals being thrust into a Christless eternity and are at orbit forever in the regions of the damned. In other words, there are many evangelicals going to hell when they die. And it's not because they heard the gospel message and found it wanting. It's not because they didn't like it. It's because they neglect the things of God. They neglect the cost and the call of the gospel. And if this is true, then it is not enough for me to sit here week in and week out and and preach to you a message that does not make explicit the gospel, does not make explicit that which Jesus calls us to, and doesn't make explicit who God is and what he's about. And so for the next nine weeks or so, we are going to be in a series I am calling the Abrasive Gospel. And the reason I have entitled it this, the reason I have entitled it The Abrasive Gospel is because it is going to rub us if we're leaning in, if we're listening correctly in a way that will be uncomfortable. It is going to chisel us and mold us and cause us to see God differently and see the gospel for what it truly is. We do not need a social gospel. We do not need a prosperity gospel. We don't need an easy gospel. And friends, we don't even need a helpful gospel. We need a beautifully robust, God-glorifying, Holy Spirit-honoring, Jesus-treasuring and exalting, Lordship-embracing, cost-and-cross-cherishing, abrasive, yet life-giving gospel. Life-giving gospel. So the end and the aim of this series is to make explicit that which God has done for us through his son, for his glory, and to our benefit. But in order to get there, we're going to have to travel down a road that is going to no doubt sting. But if we don't understand the bad news, we can't understand the good news. And if we don't understand God then we won't understand his workings. So, the gospel, in all of its splendor, all of its majesty, all of its beauty, and all of its loving kindness, endures as a violently abrasive reality as well. It has to be. By its very design, it stands starkly opposed to our innate sinfulness and our carnality, our delusions of self-sufficiency, and ultimately our desire to be and act as God. And so by way of introduction, I want this sermon here to be about this reality. The gospel starts with God. It doesn't start with man, and it doesn't start with man's sin. It starts with the God of the Bible. In all of his splendor, in all of his majesty, in all of his beauty, it starts with him. God is the foundation of the gospel. He is the reason we need the gospel, and he is the one who orchestrated accomplished and accomplishes the gospel. The one who creates a people for himself through the preaching of the gospel. And as John Piper has famously said, is the gospel. So if we want to get the gospel right, as I have said, we have to get God right. So who is God? What is he about? Well, first and foremost, God is paramount. God is completely and gloriously holy and righteous. He is the only source of good, and he is the only one who does good. He is transcendent. He is set apart from creation, both in his powerful might and his moral excellence. He loves and executes justice. He is supremely beautiful, and he is garbed in purity. There is no God besides him, and he cannot dwell with, approve of, or ultimately allow sin. 
He utterly abhors it and all those who revel in it, as Psalm 5 and Psalm 7 make plain. In other words, he is completely other and supremely good. Friends, God is not only real, but he is glorious and he is holy and he is beautiful. And he is real. And so if you are here this morning and you are not engaged with what we do here week in and week out, if you are here and you are closing your ears and you are just checking boxes and you are just doing what you're doing to please your family members, your wife, or so on, or if you're just trying to get some cultural pats on the back, let me just say this, that clasping your ears and or burying your head in the sand will not excuse you from living in God's world and being subjected to his rule and his reign. You may rebel, you may suppress the truth and exchange it for lies that enable you to pursue your disordered lusts and passions, but you will still have to answer for yourself on judgment day to this God in relationship to his attributes and his will for you and for your life. So, if you don't know this God, if you do not love this God, if you are not engaged with this God, let me say this, that this sermon series is going to be, I believe, a helpful way for you to see him in his bigness, to see him in his godness, and to see him in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his beauty, in his goodness, in his love, and in his action. Lean in. Lean in. The benefits of leaning in will be amazing, I I promise. God has revealed himself in his word in a wonderful way that should cause us to fall in humble adoration, cause us to worship. Would you pray with me to begin our time? Father, we, we thank you that you are a good God. And that you are not like us, that you are holy, that you are magnificent, that you are majestic in holiness. And we thank you that you did what we couldn't do. You accomplished a way for us to be brought into communion with you. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you sent him to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we all deserve to die, and that you gave him to lead us into righteousness in the form of the Holy Spirit, that you have sent your spirit to convict us and to grow us. And we, and we thank you for all of these realities. And we ask that you would help us today, that you would illuminate the scriptures and that you would challenge us and that you would give us deeper understanding, not of information, but of you, so that we could behold your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Now, if I said to you, right out of the gate, if I said to you the word holiness, what would you think? What would you imagine? What would your heart response be? Is this a word that you're familiar with? And if you are familiar with it, How do you interact with it? How do you engage with this word? Well, I am not sure. I'm sure there's a lot of different ways we could think about this word as it's presented in culture, as we read it in the Bible. But I'm going to guess that there are two primary ways in which you engage this word. The first one being that it's not all that important. That it's not something that we should use uh, in our daily Christian life uh, by way of it being a term that we shouldn't actually pursue holiness, or that we we don't fully understand it even. So we might be ignorant to it. So we might think it's not important, and, and some of that might be malicious, right? That we're just completely choosing to look the other way, and some of it just might be ignorance. We don't know what it means for us to pursue holiness or what it means to be holy. And that's probably the biggest group. The second group 
is a little bit more sinister in that as soon as I say the word holiness, you're going to lob at me this this accusation that I am trying to preach law, that I'm trying to preach legalism, that I have brought something into this pulpit that should walk right out the door, never to be seen again. And friends, that does not do justice to the biblical witness that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. As we look around at the church, at the state of affairs, we can see that things are crumbling, that there is a moral decay, that churches have, in essence, very simply lost their mind. That there is not a lot of differentiation between the world and the church. That we can't tell the difference nowadays between a pastor and those who are not even Christian. And the reason for that, as R.C. Sproul has said, is because it is holiness unrecognized that is the problem. He says it exactly like this. The failure of evangelicalism is the failure to recognize God's holiness. In other words... Preachers get up in the pulpit week in and week out to tickle the ears of the hearers and not to push them to think about what holiness is and what it is about and why it is a necessity in the Christian life. We want, as people, as sinful, finite creatures, we want therapy, but we do not want redemption. We want to be happy, but we don't want to be holy. We want to feel good and we want to avoid pain, but we do not want to avoid sin. But here's the reality, friends. No matter what the world says, no matter what other churches say, the word of God makes plain that we are to take holiness absolutely seriously. But more than that, we have got to take God seriously and we have to take God's holiness seriously. Now, we are going to talk about uh, in the weeks to come what it means to pursue holiness as people who accept the gospel, who love Jesus, and why that's a necessity in our discipleship. But today, primarily, we're going to talk about God's holiness because we have to start there. We have to understand what it means that God is holy and how that impacts the rest of our conversation. So, I'm just going to say this on the front end, that the next two weeks are going to be very hard. They're going to push us in ways maybe we haven't been pushed before. And things are going to sound harsh. Things are going to sound not very uh, palatable. But I need you to hang in there with me. Because to get to life, we have to at least see some form of death. But there is no death in God, just death in our perception of understanding this God. So, why take God seriously? Why take his holiness seriously? Well, as J.I. Packer has said, the holiness of God is the attributes of attributes. It is penultimate. It is the thing that everything else is defined by. It's the context that all other attributes exist in. And you've, you know what I'm talking about when I say attributes. We have talked about that a lot as a church. We've been through classes that talk about it. I've taught on it. And the reality is attributes, that is the things that make God, God, are all summed up in this one attribute, his holiness. And this is why we are talking about it on the front end. Stephen Charnack says it like this, power is God's hand or arm. Omniscience is his eye. Mercy, his bowels. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. The thing that makes him exquisite. The thing that makes him God. In a similar vein, Thomas Watson has said that God's holiness is the most sparkling jewel of his crown. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to see from two examples in the Bible what it looks like to come in contact with God's holiness. What it looks like to be in His presence. What it looks like to see God for God. 
starting in verse 1 of chapter 6 in Isaiah. It says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from, your, from you, and your sin is forgiven. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the presence of the Lord filling this temple? So in the year that King Uzziah died, Israel was on a downturn. They were fearful of what lay ahead, much like we are in now. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. It seems like there is one tragedy after another. And in this time, Israel has no idea whether tomorrow is one of prosperity or one of doom. The king, the guy who had changed Israel, is now dead, and he died This is kind of an offshoot because he didn't recognize God's holiness. He died because he thought he was special, that he could do anything he wanted, that he could go into the presence of the Lord and just do him. So in the king that Uzziah died, Isaiah sees this vision and he sees this vision of God, of the Lord, high and exalted, lifted up his Robe filled the temple. And it even says that the wood trembled at the sound of his voice. And these seraphim flew, crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One of the preachers that I uh, am quite fond of says that These creatures, the seraphim, though we don't know much about them, we can ascertain or we can discern rather what it is that these creatures are. And that is this, that they are in fact the most holy, the most beautiful creatures that God has ever made. That they are the most pure. And he says the reason that we do know this is because of the proximity that they are to God. We are separated from Him and they are not. And they use this holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they use it over and over, calling back and forth to one another. And this is important. This is very important. And the reason it's important is because the Hebrews did this to make a point. They, t- they piled term on term on term. Now, we as Americans, if we want to make a point when we're writing or, with, or, or we're saying something, We know how to draw people's attention to it. If it is in a book, we might underline something. We might bolden it. We might put an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Or if I want to make a point about what I'm saying when I'm preaching to you, I might raise my voice. And that would cause you to lean in, to be like, whoa, what's going on here? But the Hebrews, what they did is they, t- they, they stacked terms. So if they were to say something was really exquisitely beautiful, they might just say that it is beautiful, beautiful. And you would be keyed into the reality that this wasn't just something that was just kind of beautiful. It was something beautiful, beautiful. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus says what he does in the Gospels when he says, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, And he says it at the front end. Listen up. Truly, truly. What I'm about to say is actually really, really true. And in the same way, this holy, holy is the same thing. God is holy, holy. But he's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And this is the only time in the scriptures that something is used three times. 
And that should cause us to pause. That should cause us to think about this very critically. Because there is no place in Scripture where it says that God is love, love, love. There is no place in Scripture where it says that God is wrath, wrath, wrath. It doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or that He is compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. But rather, it does say that He is holy, holy, holy. And however we define this term, we can see we can see that Isaiah is in dire straits. He is undone. That's what he says here at the end of this vision. After he sees these things happening, after this tension is filling the room, as smoke is rising, as wood is trembling, as these heavenly creatures are screaming and singing about the reality that this God is holy, covering their eyes and covering their feet. For they cannot look upon such beauty, such holiness. And Isaiah leans in and he says this, that that I am ruined. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And so however we define holiness, which we will get to here in a moment, we have to understand that when we come into the presence of God, that when we recognize his holiness, what it doesn't do is encourage us right away. What it doesn't do is make us happy. What it does is it causes us to reflect upon our unholiness, to reflect on the fact that we do not stack up against this God, that we are not like him, that he is completely and transcendently other. It should cause us to echo with Isaiah that we are ruined. We are unclean. We are not God. And in like matter, I, I, I want you to turn with me to Exodus. Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus very quickly. We're going to look at another encounter with God's holiness. You might be familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. He's walking in the wilderness and he sees this bush burning and he's drawn to it because it's not burning up. It's just staying lit. It's staying aflame. Let's just read a good chunk of this. Start with me here in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why this bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So once again, God appears as a burning bush, as a fire. Now, a lot of times in, in Christian thinking, we like to think of God as, 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 being, as being winsome, as being a stream of water. We sing about these types of things, but God reveals himself more often than that as something fire. He is a consuming fire, as the Bible would say. And Moses approaches him, and, and he doesn't let him move, and he says, stop. Stop right there and take off your shoes because you're about to enter into holy space. You're going to step on holy ground, so remove that. He announces who he is. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does it say? That Moses couldn't look at him. He threw himself down. He hid his face. God is otherworldly. God is different. God is holy. Once again, however we define this term, 
when we're confronting with God's holiness, it undoes us. It unnerves us. It causes us to think differently about who He is. It causes trepidation. It causes fear. It causes awe. It causes a lot of things that are not pleasant. Emotions that we're not fond of. Things that we try to push away in our modern context. This is the God. Do you see God this way? When you lean down near your bed to pray at night, do you tremble? Do you? The word holiness comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which can literally mean to cut, right? To separate, to exclude, to set apart. And one of the ways we can think about this is in the next thing that is said here in this passage. Verse 7. Chapter 3 in Exodus, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of my sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So God sees his people suffering under the hand of Pharaoh. His, their afflictions have gone up to him. That means that he is about to act. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh. This is verse 10. So that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. In other words, Moses, I need you to go get my people, the people that I have heard. And Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? You're God. I'm just some guy scared of a burning bush right now. And he said, Certainly I, be, I will be with you. And then just as an aside, if God is with you, that's all you need. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Who do I say sent me? And God answers, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is profound on many levels. And this has two primary ways to understand it. This has two primary definitions. The first one being this, that he is saying that I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the covenant-keeping God who is going to make his promise, good. But it also is a declaration of self-existence. I am, I am. In other words, he doesn't know how to, or that's probably the wrong way to put it. He cannot point to anything else other than himself to explain who he is because he is so transcendent, so set apart, so cut off from everything that we can comprehend. He is the I am. And a lot of people will say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that he was just a great teacher. Don't do that to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus gave us no option to do such a thing. When he's standing before the Pharisees at his trial, they ask him, are you God? His response is, before Abraham was, I am. If you don't see the connection there, if you can't see that Jesus was claiming to be God, then I can't help you. That's exactly what he was doing. He was claiming to be this God. He was claiming to be 
this God. Which brings me to another point. Who was sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6? Who was sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6? It was Christ. The vision of this great king was Christ. And we know that because Christ is the way in which God orients himself to the world. If you have seen Christ, you have seen God. The creation was made for and through Jesus Christ. Redemption was accomplished by Jesus Christ. His perfect existence, his, the imprint of his nature, is seen in Jesus Christ. Christ was on the throne, and Christ is still on the throne. He is this holy and majestic God. And you might say, well, how does this work itself out when, when the Old Testament God is, is kind of a meanie, and then the New Testament God is loving, and he carries a sheep on his shoulder. He has long, flowing hair. The reality is God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Christ was the king high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. He was the God speaking to Moses in the wilderness. He was holy then. He is holy now. And he requires holiness of his people. So he is transcendent. He is set apart. He is cut off. And he is separated primarily in two different ways. One, from creation. He is set apart from his creation. He is not like you. Now we are made in the image of God and we are like him, but he is not like you. And he is not like me. He is completely other. He is absolutely different. You cannot point to, a lot of people say, God is like such and such and such. God is like this. God is like that. And I get fearful when I hear such things because God is not like all of these other things. He is in a category all to himself. Now, it is true we are told to call him father. It's an endearing term. It's an anthropomorphism. It is something to help us identify with who he is and what his heart is like. But in no way does that mean that we should not consider him holy or that we shouldn't have a reverential fear. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to hollow this father's name. And to hollow something is to, is to call it, to respect it as, and to see it as holy. And so this is the biblical witness. He is set apart from his creation, but he is also set apart from moral corruption. Habakkuk 1.13 says that his eyes are too pure to approve of evil, to behold evil. He is pure. He is perfect. He is completely and morally cut off. There is not an ounce of sin in him. Right, Thomas Watson has also said there is not even a dash or a tincture in the mixture of his person of evil. He is completely holy, all holy. And what this doesn't mean is that he is holy. It's not just an attribute that he has, but rather that is him. He is holy. And so any definition that we have of holy is simply based off of who he is. Thomas Watson even goes on to say in the body of divinity that any sort of Holiness that we have or that we pursue is a borrowed holiness, an extended holiness that we can't possess it. It's only borrowed from who God is. So how do we know God's holiness? How is it revealed to us? The Bible gives us three primary ways in which holiness is made known to his people. The first one is the law. The second one is his son, God's son. And the third one is God's people. So holiness is seen in the law. God's holiness is seen in his son. And God's holiness is seen in his people. We'll take the first one very quickly. His law. His law. Now, once again, 
We're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about how the law is evil. The law is not evil. The law, as John Calvin has said, is is a fence. It keeps us from sinning. It's a mirror. It shows us our sin. But more than that, it reveals the character of who God is. It reveals what he values. It reveals what he loves. It reveals what he hates. And it does us good to pay attention to this law. A Christianity devoid of law is not Christianity. Because it is a Christianity devoid of God. Psalm 119 alone makes plain that the law is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It leads us, it guides us, and it directs us. We are told that if we are Christian, if we know God, then we will pant for it. We will long for the law. It will be like sweet honey to our mouths. It is finer than gold. It also promises that we will be conformed by it. And we'll be confronted by it. God's law is beautiful. God's law is also his word. And it shows us who God is. Secondly, God's law is revealed in his son. That is his person. He is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 says. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1 also makes clear that the Son of God is the way in which God speaks to his people. In the beginning, God spoke the creations, creation into existence. And then he spoke through prophets. And now he speaks in these last days through his son. And so when you hear of Jesus, when you see Jesus, when you read about Jesus, you are reading about God. You're learning what he loves and what he values in his person. but also the cross, his son's cross. The reality that God was willing to pay for a holy people through the death of his holy son to appease his holy wrath should cause us to contemplate the reality that holiness is a big deal. Now we're going to get into more depth about what it meant that Jesus died and that he died for you. And we're going to get into the reality that God is, in fact, love. But love and holiness do not stand opposed to one another. They are bound up in the same idea. Because God has a holy love. And He has a holy mercy. They are not two distinct things. They are bound up together in one. And as an aside, this is the reason that most people reject God. This is the reason that you might be rejecting God right now. Because He is holy. People do just fine thinking about His compassion, thinking about His mercy, thinking about His love. But the moment that you realize that He is holy, you realize that this is not a God that you want to have anything to do with. Because He's not like you. It's not like you. And thirdly, another way that he makes his holiness known is through his people. What we're doing here, this is the reason that we are here to to worship this holy God and to create a pure bride for him. This is why we do church discipline. And this is why we do the things that we do and we say the things that we say and we love the way that we love is so that we can produce a holy people. God is holy, therefore we need to be holy. This is the argument of Second Peter. We are not called to be holy arbitrarily. We are called to be holy because our God is holy and His working is to conform us to the image of the Son so that we could dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the biblical witness. And when we are holy, the world gets to not only see God, but it gets to see His holiness. 
When you are holy, you show off a holy God. You show off a holy Christ in a holy law. So holiness means that he is set apart, that he is cut off from everything, that he is transcendent, that he is bigger than you think that he is, that there is no evil in him, that he is pure. And righteousness and goodness fall underneath the same umbrella. We can't give it the same amount of time, but I want to say this, that, that righteousness is God's moral perfection. And his goodness is his disposition towards men. It is his nature. He is good, right? So it would be problematic if we had a holy God that wasn't good. Because we would still have to follow this God by virtue of the fact that he is in fact God. But how beautiful it is, is it, New Hope? How beautiful is it that not only do we have a holy God, We have a good God and a righteous God. He is good, perfect in his nature. As it says in the Gospel of the John, that, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And he is righteous. That means that God rules over all his world, all of his creation, with no partiality and no injustice. And that's a good word for today. There's a lot of talk about injustice. When we flip on our news, that's all we see. And the only cure for the injustice in the world is to recognize God is holy. God is holy. Psalm 9 says, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has pre prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. If God acts, it's the right way. If God thinks, it's the right thoughts. And he is the only one who good. He's the only one who is good. Mark 10, chapter 17. Or Mark rather, sorry. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. You may know this story. And he says, I followed all of the law. What else do I need to do? But he comes to him to flatter him before he says all of these things. And he says this, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So yes, righteousness and goodness are a virtue of God, an attribute of God, a perfection of God. And they sit underneath the umbrella of his holiness because he has a holy righteousness and he has a holy goodness. But what it says here and what it makes plain is that he is the only one that is good. And you have heard people say, well, he's a good guy. There's no such thing as a good guy. There was one good guy and we killed him. God is other. God is righteous. Perfect in his judgment. And because he is holy, because he is righteous, and because he is good, he cannot dwell with that which isn't. He cannot look upon sin favorably. He hates it. He loathes it. He has to punish it. God hates sin. And he hates those who do sin. Now, I know when I say that it is going to cause you all sorts of turmoil and trouble, but I don't mean for it to, but I want it to sink in that you cannot separate your sinning from the fact that you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, then God has to hate you because he is so other. He cannot dwell with, he can't be mixed with sin. He cannot be mixed with that that put his son on the cross. So he hates sin and he hates sinners. Psalm 5 says this. He hates all who do iniquity. Psalm 7, he abhors those who are bloodthirsty. And the Bible makes it clear when it talks about sin that it is the most nauseating, most vile, revolting reality possible. In Psalm 5, verse 9, sin is likened to an open grave. 
In other places, it, it is likened to a snake's poison, the vomit of dogs. Isaiah, if you look a little bit further into his book, says that even our good deeds are sinful and they are like minstrel rags to God. Do you take sin as seriously as God does? Because you should. And the only way that we can view the cross rightly is if we view God's holiness rightly. And to view God's holiness rightly is to view His wrath against it. Not with reluctance, but with joy. Because if He is good, and He is perfectly righteous, and He is otherworldly, He can't be. He can't love incorrectly. He can't love with the wrong motives. He can't be different than perfect, then it's good news that he has taken on sin. And we see it as good news that he punishes it because indifference to sin would be a moral blemish and it would cause God to not be God anymore. God would be bad if he wasn't holy and if he didn't condemn all that which is unholy. A.W. Pink says it like this, how could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly. How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? Because God is holy and because he is good, he has to hate that which isn't. He has to punish it. He has to put it to death. And if you are engaged in that Sin. If you are engaged in that unholiness, then he has to punish you. You may blush at that. Many pastors and preachers do blush at that, but God does not blush about it. He makes it clear that he is okay punishing that which destroys and disfigures the image bearer of God. He is not shy about relating the message that he will crush sin under his feet. And he has done so in the cross of Christ. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39. Verse 41, see now that I, I am he, God, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver me, uh, deliver from my hand. Indeed, if I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. When you sin against God, you aren't just making a mistake. You are acting in rebellion against the God of this world and you are in fact hating him. Carnal men are haters of God. And God has got to punish haters of him. Do you see God like this? Do you see God for God? Now some of you might be sitting out there, well doesn't it say that we can go to the throne of grace? That we can go to God because of Jesus and not be fearful. We're going to talk at length about this. And it is true that if you are in Christ, that his wrath no longer burns against you. But if you do not know Christ, if you do not know this God, if you are not reverent in your understanding of his holiness, And you can't get to the second part. You have to see this God for who He is to see what He has done for you. And we are going to talk about that at length in the weeks to come.
So as we leave today, I want to leave this charge with you. This is the application that I want you to take away. And I know that you're going to go out and you're probably not going to be comfortable with what you just heard today. But I want it to cause you to pause and to behold His glory. So here's my charge. Behold your God. Behold your God. This is your God. He is holy. He is majestic. He is perfect. He is absolutely worthy to be praised. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 says this. Let me just find it really quickly here. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Behold your God. Behold your God. Think about Him. Ponder Him. Praise Him. Apply yourself to the study of the attributes of God. The Bible makes clear that His people do not perish because they don't have enough food. They do not perish because they don't have enough houses to live in. They don't have enough goods. Rather, they perish for lack of knowledge. So learn to see God and His world the way the Bible paints it and be okay with the fact, and as a matter of fact, love the fact that He has to punish evil because He is not evil. Stand in awe of this God. Fear Him. Be in reverence to His holiness. And it is there. It is in beginning. It is in there, it is in the beginning of understanding His holiness that we can start to understand who God is and what He has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, pray with me. Father, we, we want You to show us who You are. We want You to take this truth that You are holy, that You are righteous, and that You are good, and that You have to punish that which is evil. We want to not only believe these things, but we want to love these things. So give us, give us a proper understanding. Drive this information from our head to our hearts so that we may behold the beauty of your son. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I love you all. God bless.